Hey, everybody, it's Molly. I want to let you know that this episode was recorded before the COVID-19 crisis, so it might seem a bit weird that we don't talk about the pandemic in the episode. Before we launch into the episode, I want to share that these are incredibly challenging times for everyone experiencing homelessness and all of us who care about our unhoused community. So many of us are feeling overwhelmed and powerless, overworked and exhausted. The challenge we face just became a whole lot more daunting. During these challenging times, I hope that everybody is staying safe, that you're taking time to take care of yourself and connect to your support network. For me personally, part of what's sustaining me through 12-hour workdays is how inspired I am by so many heroes who are on the front lines of this crisis, providing outreach, medical care, food, and keeping our shelters running. I'm so grateful to everyone out there who is helping to keep our existing programs running and helping to stand up new programs. We are going to get through this, and all of us at the Housing Justice LA podcast are sending you so much love. Welcome to the Housing Justice LA podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I am Larray Cantley. On this podcast, we explore how principles of housing justice can help address the crisis of homelessness in Los Angeles. We are starting today with a personal story from Jaden Alexander. Hi, I'm Jaden. I'm a CSH Speak Up Advocate. Um, I grew up in Florida. Um, I was there for about 17 years. I was homeless in Florida for two years, but the rest was when I came to California. My family didn't understand me because I'm transgender, but at the back of the time I was just gay. I wasn't transgender yet, I didn't transition, so they didn't understand it. You know, besides that, I always had problems in school and bullying. So for all the stuff that was going on, I kind of acted out a little bit because I didn't understand myself or why they were treating me so differently and uh, my parents couldn't deal with that and found out I had a mental illness as well and it was too much for them. And I just turned about 18, was like right on my birthday. At first, you know, my bags were packed outside and I was just lost, I didn't know what to do. So um, I had a partner at the time and she told me about a shelter in Florida. So that was my first shelter I've ever been to. And I was there for about a year. It was a nice shelter. It was for kids between 14 and 21. You know, I had a pretty decent time there. They really kind of helped me. But I couldn't live the life anymore. I hated Florida. I hated everything about it. I wasn't getting anywhere. An individual at the shelter told me that he knows someone in California that was offering a job. And he would pay for me and get me over here. And, and I wanted to do it. I wanted to get my life together and work and so it was true he paid for my plane ticket and I left the shelter and well when I got to San Francisco um you know the first day I tried the job and it wasn't what he said it was and he yelled at me and told me I brought you down here for nothing you're worthless so I was frightened for my life and I just end up you know leaving the house so you know of course I don't know anyone in San Francisco or California in general so I was scared I was crying so I had to pretty much figure my way around. So I thought I would just start off by walking, and then I found the freeway. So I was walking on the side of the freeway for like two weeks straight. So meanwhile, I had no food, no nothing, and then I was getting so weak that I had to just throw away that one suitcase I had. I had no nothing. So I didn't know what to do. I just thought I couldn't take anymore. I was getting sick, so 
luckily I had a phone still with me. It was like a prepaid old phone, and there were still some minutes on there. So um, you can use it for a little bit of internet. So I was chatting with somebody offline, and they told me, get your way to the nearest Greyhound, and I'll bring you to L.A. So I ended up asking around, and I finally figured out how to get to the Greyhound, which was another little bit of walking, and that Greyhound got me to L.A. So when I got to L.A., the girl let me stay with her for like two days, but then she told me that, you know, pretty much I wasn't her type and wanted me to get out. So um, I was living in backyards, people's backyards and, and dirt. So, you know, I was getting caught a few times sleeping and, you know, I don't want to get beat up by somebody, you know, I just didn't know where to go. I don't know nothing. I'm not going to lie, I stole from the store a few times, the food store, nothing else, because I need to survive, not because I was a bad person wanting to steal. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't even know about that GR food stamps. I know nothing about that. You know, where I'm from, we don't have that stuff. The last time I laid in the dirt, um, there was two men that came in the back and grabbed me and beat the crap out of me and raped me. And um, from then I tried to commit suicide. Uh, I laid in the middle of the street, just waiting for a car to run me over. Um, but a nice man drove by me and got me help. He, he told me that something's wrong and I'm going to take you to the hospital. So I ended up in the hospital. I was in a psychiatric ward. I was 20 now. They knew of a program, uh, Pacific Clinics, in uh, Arendelle, and they had a transitional living program for Tay, which was 18, I think, to 24. So they came to pick me up at the hospital and told me that we're going to get you off the streets, we're going to get you in a housing, and, but it's going to be with a group of girls, a few girls, because um, I didn't transition yet. And I was crying. I was like, I, I, you know, that's wonderful. I don't care. And, and I have to understand you can't be picky when you want to change your life. If someone's trying to help you, you, you have to do it. So I was, so I was happy. I went to a transition living in um, Altadena, and I was there for about two years or maybe a year and a half. And uh, the lady was so nice, I won't forget her. And she was trying to teach me the things in California, the resources. So I got on GR and food stamps. That was my first thing. And then I went to school. And then um, I was on medicine. I took some medicine for my trauma and uh, my depression. And um, the lady told me, she was like, I have a surprise for you. And this was like um, a week before Christmas. And she was like, I, there's these apartments opening up. You know, it's your own apartment, um, but there's case management on site. I'm going to sign you up for it. And I said, okay, oh, yeah, let's go. And I was like, in my head, of course, I'm thinking, yeah, right, I'm not going to get it. Ended up not even four days. They had told me to come for interview there. And I got in. I was in my apartment like one day before Christmas. And it was like the best feeling ever. When I first got there, I was scared. Not scared because I had, I was independent, had my own place, because that's a dream come true, but not knowing how to do that. Uh, I was in my house all the time, just sleeping and not doing anything, being lazy. And then of course, people would end up judging me, saying that I just don't wanna do nothing with my life. I'm just a piece of crap, lazy, but that's not true. People don't understand how it is to be on the streets for so many years and you just get into an apartment and it's like, what do I do? I was very alone. I had nobody, knew nobody. I had to start off like a little kid and make friends again. And But I was so isolated and had a wall up for anybody. Even people that seemed like they care, 
I didn't want to hear it. I didn't because I've been so traumatized, not even from family, but from people in, in younger age beating me up because I was different or making fun of me. How can I trust someone I just meet, you know? It took me a while, but I had to tell myself, not everyone's bad. You know, there are some people that actually care and want to help you. And if I can't help myself, I need some guidance. And that's what made me, you know, put my wall down a little bit. And when I see people do things from their heart to help me, that put my wall down completely. But that's how I stopped being alone by coming out of a shell and being who I am. I'm very outgoing. I'm very funny and sociable. And um, now I don't feel alone as much, but, you know, I, I still have my moments, but um, I'm not alone anymore. I put my wall down, and now I, the people that are in my life I truly care about, and I would do the same for that, anybody that's been there for me. So we had the case management in the site, and they were very helpful. Um, I went down, they met with me all the time and helped me out with a few things. And it took me about a year and a half to finally accept my past, accept everything. I first had to start off with baby steps. I couldn't just jump into a, a job and start. And of course, that's something I would always want to do. But with all that trauma, I, I couldn't imagine just going right to work. So I did the baby step route. I first went to like um, internships and to see how it was to be working. It was hard. I wanted to say F everything. I can't do this. And But I did it. I proved to myself and I proved to one of my caseworkers I care about so much, he pushed me so much that I would get really mad, but he knew there was something in, in me that I can do it. And I went through the internship for a whole year. Then I went to another internship for another year. Then I tried to go back to school. Um, the schooling didn't work out well, because I figured I think I want to work. I want to make money. I want to get the things I always wanted. I never got gifts. I never got things handed to me and I never begged for money. I can't. I, it's, that's just not me. And um, so now I've been working. It's been uh, over a year now. I do activities for, um, in, they call it enrichment coordinator at a building that's also kind of like the building I'm at, but they're more older. They're about 40 and above and these individuals have mental health issues, physical issues, health issues, and they're also veterans. It's interesting because it's like I'm working with a group of people that have been in the same situation as me and me dealing with my own self with mental illness. I got to learn how to deal with others. So that was a, a big part for it. But what made me f want to do this is because I understand them. It's not easy being who you are when you have some kind of issues, being judged and calling names. Fam a lot of their families aren't there with them. So me doing things for them and making them laugh is makes me feel better, you know? Even though I didn't have certain things, have someone to make me feel better and this and that, I want to give back to people that need somebody because God helped me get through where I got to go. And so now I just want to, that's why I did this job I'm doing because I can understand them and help them as well. You know, some people have been privileged. You know, they grew up with everything. And they're, you know, they don't understand, like, oh, you're homeless. You just choose to be homeless. And and that's not the case. I didn't choose to be homeless. I would have never chose to be homeless. Who, who wants to choose to be homeless? I was doing a speech, and um, some lady, when I was done, she told me, can I talk to you? And I was like, sure. 
and she started crying. She was like, my uh, my son's gay, and I accept it, but he's someone different now. He's scared, and people are, are bullying him, and to hear your story was heartfelt, and I want to speak to my son and let him know that he's not the only one that has to go through things like this. And I want him to understand that I accept it and that should help him a little bit. And so I pretty much opened her eyes to let her know that people do go through stuff being who they are and not being accepted. And um, she just really appreciated me and she said, I'm gonna go home and talk to him tonight. <laughs> so it, it felt good. You know, you can tell people things, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll change their minds. But I'm really hoping because nobody's perfect even the people that have the greatest life, there's always some little thing in their life that's struggling with them. We're all human. If we all were a loving community and helped each other for who we are, this world would be a greater place. If you pass by someone that's homeless, you don't have to help, but say hi. Some people just want to hear a hi that you acknowledge that you see them and that you, you want to say hi and be nice. And you know, when I was homeless, I just wanted a friend. Yeah, of course I wanted help, but I wanted someone there for me, you know? So I just think if we were all loving towards each other, everything would be different. You know, everyone has been through something. Everyone's human. We are very grateful to Jaden for sharing his story with us. Today's episode is about ancestors, trauma, and healing. We are thrilled to have an interview with Colleen Echohawk. Colleen is the executive director of the Chief Seattle Club. The Chief Seattle Club is dedicated to physically and spiritually supporting American Indian and Alaska Native people and are based in the Pioneer Square District in downtown Seattle, Washington. Colleen, it is an honor to have you on the Housing Justice LA podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, You describe yourself as a storyteller, so I thought maybe you could start by telling us um, a little bit about your personal origin story. So I was born and raised in uh, rural Alaska. My dad is Pawnee um, from Oklahoma. He came to Alaska to work on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline as a surveyor, and I, um, well, he met my mom, um, who was born and raised in Alaska, and they got together, and they had me and their oldest child, and got to be um, raised in a really beautiful, um, very loving community. I have a ton of siblings. I had a bunch of kids, and um, I just feel pretty fortunate to have gotten to be um, in and around the Alaska Native community in Alaska, and really learned a lot about um, subsistence lifestyle and about how to take care of your community, how to take care of your family. And that has really sustained me and led me in the work that I now get to do in serving and loving our relatives who've been experiencing homelessness. And can you talk about how you learned about the history of Native Americans in the United States and the genocide against Native Americans? What was the experience of sort of learning that history as you were growing up? Yeah, it was part of kind of our story and the way that we lived. My dad felt quite um, worried about us 
um, not living near the tribe. And so he did a lot of talking and telling stories about our community. I can remember really clearly having him teaching us how to do the right kind of dance and which shared a lot of history. And one of the things he did share to us is that how he would um, go with his dad and they would take um, groceries to um, one of the elders who had survived the long walk. So he would tell us about how he would go over to their house and, and would offer them food and try to take care of them and, and remember that they had survived a huge genocide and, and they saw thousands of people die and they and they survived through that. So my dad really did a, a really great effort of trying to, to keep us informed. And then, you know, as I got older and went to college, I tended to just be very attracted to some of the history classes that focus on Native American history and did a lot of work in that arena to know as much as I possibly could. The real sad thing is that because there was a genocide in the Native community, there's so many much history that's gone, right? Like there's not a lot of people who knew anyone who survived that genocide. So it's something that we are sadly having to learn from the history books. And of course, the history books didn't get it quite right. We know that's a fact. So it's complicated, but something that um, I'm really grateful that my parents took time to teach us. For people who aren't familiar with the term the long walk, can you talk about what the long walk refers to? The Pawnee Nation was originally settled in Nebraska and Kansas, and we were moved by the Bureau of Indian Affairs to Oklahoma, where our ancestors translated Oklahoma into just a hot place in our language because it was a very inhospitable place. Along the way, we lost lots and lots of people. There was about 15,000 of us in the mid-1800s, and then by um, the early 1900s, there was only 600 folks left. And so I think about them quite a bit. I think about what they struggled through and all of the work they did to ensure that our community could be thriving now. And so I believe that those ancestors are really pushing me in this work and teaching me always about the work that's ahead of us. So the long walk was a very hard time in the Native community and for the Pawnee people, but I'm also incredibly proud of those people that survived and sustained, ensuring that, you know, I could be talking with you right now on this podcast. One of the um, stories you told at the Housing Justice Summit that I think really resonated with folks and that people didn't completely understand um, was how Native American boarding schools impacted the Native American community and what that experience was like and your own, I think you were talking about your uncle's experience, and I'd love for you to share that story. So I um, am really fortunate to have grown up near the Alaska Native community, and they actually adopted me and my siblings and my mom into their tribe. And so this is a, a story of one of my uncles who was put into a boarding school when he was around seven years old. And when he was in that boarding school, um, one of the, the stories that he tells and, and has allowed me to share as well is that he forgot his name because the school system there, the boarding schools, they just called the children by a number. So his number was 77. And he speaks really passionately and shares this beautiful story that his older brother, who was um, in the boarding school would stop him when he could and and say to him, your name is not 77, your name is Fred John. And 
Um, what was really sweet about that story and, and really special is that his um, brother did that at, at some risk because they were abused and beaten if they spoke their traditional language, the Athabascan language, and they were um, not supposed to be talking to people outside of their grade. And, and it's just really another story of um, resilience and of the power of community and the power of that sibling connection of just wanting to ensure that that name was spoken and that he wouldn't forget because that was so connected to who he was as um, a Native person and that he belonged to his brother and he wasn't about to let him forget that. So it's a really um, beautiful story that I'm really grateful that I've been um, allowed to share. Yeah, I was really moved hearing that story and understanding how that disconnection from history and sense of identity continues to impact your community today and how you bring that into your work at the Chief Seattle Club. So I'd love for you to talk about how you found your way to the Chief Seattle Club, and then we can start talking about what you're doing there and the incredible work you're doing. I found my way to the Chief Seattle Club first as a board member. I was um, asked to be a board member and decided to take that on and and really started falling in love with the agency. And then um, our previous executive director resigned and we kind of struggled for a little bit to find someone. And then um, I got some gentle coaxing to think about it. And then then I got hired. And, you know, I, I really think it was just a push from my ancestors to get involved in this work in a, in a deeper way. And it has truly been one of the greatest gifts in my life. I feel so fortunate to get to do this work. I love the work. I'm incredibly passionate about the work. I believe that our relatives deserve housing stability and they deserve every effort that we can possibly give to ensure that they get um, properly taken care of. So it's a real pleasure to get to do the work and get to talk to people like yourselves about it because it's a passion, (laughs) an obsession. (laughs) That's great. Can you tell us about the work that the Chief Seattle Club does and what its role is in Seattle? So Chief Seattle Club is a day center and a human service provider for Native folks who've been experiencing homelessness. Our mission is to provide sacred space to nurture and affirm the spirit of urban Native people. And we do that because we do have incredibly high rates of Native homelessness in the city of Seattle, but we also know this is a national issue as well, that we have very, very high rates of Native people experiencing homelessness all over the country. And so the Chief Seattle Club is really responding to those rates of Native homelessness in Seattle. We have 150-ish people every day who use our day center. We provide wraparound services, everything from, you know, food, showers, and laundry to case management, rapid rehousing. Um, We also focus our work and found everything we do around traditional practices. So we work really hard Um, to ensure that we have traditional um, healers on site. We partner with another agency called the Sandling Health Board who also have that same philosophy. So we have doctors and nurses on site who are not only very skilled in Western medicine, but are also really trying to push us towards the more traditional medicines, which we really believe are essential for the healing work we're doing in our community. So I love the work. I'm super glad I get to do the work. We also have pushed into some new places in the past five years. We have a a bridge housing project called Eagle Village, which is all Native folks um, working towards permanent housing. And then we also, um, we're building housing. Um, It's a project called All All. 
Al Al is the Lashutsi word for home. The Lashutsi language is the language of the Coast Salish people on, on whose land we're on in, in Seattle. And um, we're creating 80 uh, units of housing for our relatives. So we have a lot going on, but again, it's just pure joy to get to do this work for some of the most beautiful people that I know. Congratulations on your first housing development. That is really exciting. Thank you. Um, And wonderful for your community. Can you talk a little bit about the process, about how you both designed and how you planned to program that supportive housing to make it a healing environment? One of the first things I would say is that we've been very intentional about the design of the building. We really think that for folks who've experienced a lot of institutional trauma, that it's very important for us to have a place that looks and feels good for Native people to come to. So we've worked with some uh, Native architects and with some of our community members to really inform the design of the building. And so that's going to be a big, exciting part of the work that's going to happen there. We also really were aware that there was other dynamics that were going to be difficult. And so we're housing some folks who spent years and years outside. So they're going to need a lot of care. The new building, All All, is right next to the current Chief Seattle Club. So we have some ongoing services there that will be supporting the folks who are moving into that new building. But we also are providing, um, you know, some great case management as well as more focus on the traditional healing methods. We're working on a traditional uh, medicine garden so that every single participant who's living in the building can, you know, have access to traditional medicines like sweetgrass and um, sage and cedar and some more of the traditional medicines from this area. Um, we also intentionally are, are naming every floor after a traditional medicine. So, you know, you might live on the sweetgrass floor, you might live on the cedar floor, and, and we're just trying to be very intentional throughout the entire building to promote wellness and healing. And also, I think what's so beautiful about it is that this is a a Native-led housing project. So we really are saying to you, our community, you know, you've been out there for a really long time and you've tried to access other services that were not led by the Native community and they didn't work for you. But this is being prepared for you by your relatives and we are going to try to serve you in the way that makes sense to you as a Native um, person. So... I'm honestly just thrilled. It's not just the healing of our homeless community. It's the healing for all Native people who are involved in this project. Because for a long time, there's been government actions that did not allow us to take care of each other. And so this is a really beautiful thing that we're getting to be involved in. I'm curious about if you see anything shifting in terms of understanding the fact that homelessness was a foreign concept in your community before colonial times here, that this is an experience brought by a very different relationship to land than obviously your ancestors had? And if there's increasing acknowledgement of that, or do we continue to sort of be in denial (laughs) about the fact that it's all stolen land? (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think that, you know, there's someone at the summit who phrased it perfectly, like, can we have housing justice on stolen land? And it's something that I mean, I actually, you know, used that in a talk two days ago um, because it's a really important question to consider. And I think 
that there is incredible room for finding ways to offer payment to Native communities for the land. But again, it's incredibly complicated because there's a lot of nuances that are are hard to understand. But I would say that there are other countries around the world who have recognized the atrocities done to Native people or Indigenous people. I'm talking about like Australia and New Zealand and Canada. And they did find ways to repay Native community for their land. And I think that is one step that we have to think about and that we can't run away from. I think in this current political situation we're in, I think it's highly unlikely. (laughs) But, you know, you never know what will happen in the future. And I'm hopeful that my children will experience something different than what I have experienced And I do think there is an incredible connection of our homeless Native community and land. I've heard a lot of our folks who talk about just being comforted by the closeness to the land. Or um, I talked to someone the other day talking about how connected they felt to a tree that they slept under. You know, Native community has some different ways of thinking about land and water that um, I think are important. And um, it's something I'm, I'm still kind of understanding as I, you know, do this work for the homeless community. I'm curious what's happening nationally around Native homelessness. Um, You were talking about how the high rates of Native homelessness in Seattle are not unique to Seattle, that that's a national phenomenon. Um, And is there work happening at the federal level to address Native homelessness? Yeah, you know, we have some really wonderful federal partners. I was honored to be the facilitator on behalf of the uh, some federal uh, agencies, the Interagency Council on Homelessness, and also um, HUD was there. And we um, all convened in Anchorage. Um, and we had a, a nice smattering of people from around the country. It, honestly, it was not a complete table. There was a lot of people that were not there that I thought could have been there, and we would have had a more well-rounded conversation. But it was a really great start. And so um, that happened last year. This year, there is going to be a national convening after the National Conference on Ending Homelessness in D.C. of Indigenous people from around the country who are working in homelessness. Um, And that is through the National Coalition to End Urban Indigenous Homelessness. Uh, We are really close to having our website up. I just got a preview of it the other day. So we invite people to check us out there. We also will be really working harder on our social media on that. And we just really want to invite Native people from around the country to come to D.C. We'll have a call-in option as well. There's a lot of work that we have to do within the urban centers, and that's a really important factor. There's homelessness on the reservations, but this coalition is going to focus on urban issues because we just have such incredible rates um, around the country. So We're looking at being more influential and and more active in policy um, because we really understand that if we don't, our relatives will continue to suffer and die and they deserve our every effort. So we're moving forward and um, hoping to have a real place in the national advocacy community as we move forward. We have an incredible homeless crisis in Los Angeles, and it's a crisis that the whole West Coast is experiencing, and I know you're experiencing in Seattle as well. I'm just curious, from a bigger picture, what you feel Seattle's getting right and what you're still struggling with in terms of how to face the increased numbers of people falling into homelessness. It is very hard <laughs> to work in the in this sector because we do see such incredible things happening to individuals that we really love. And so that that makes it very hard. But I do think that there are some good things that are happening in Seattle. 
Um, we're right in the middle of joining our King County um, and City of Seattle dollars and creating this regional authority, which we learned a lot from uh, LA County on that. And then I think that there's some really incredible efforts to address the race issue, right? We, we have a strong focus on, on race and equity in King County. And in fact, about three years ago, we actually made a concerted effort to say that we would focus on Native people experiencing homelessness and we would do more for them. Now, we had mixed results on that, but I do think that actually setting that intention has been helpful for the Native community. And um, we're seeing more and more of our Native folks get into housing. We saw the city of Seattle um, in 2017 uh, release dollars to um, Native agencies who were working specifically on getting people back into housing. So there's some good things happening. I think that there's an understanding that we do need to be culturally responsive in our efforts around supporting our folks who are experiencing homelessness, as well as creating housing that is culturally specific to cultural communities. It's pretty fun. Um, it's a challenge all the time, but it's also... Um, an important part of doing the work. Um, one thing I say to people all the time is that, you know, having Native people at the table and other POC folks is essential in order for us to get it right. Um, the equity work we're doing is not just the right thing, it's not just the just thing, but it's also the effective thing. If we want to get this right, we want to get everyone off of the streets and equity work has got to go hand in hand with it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's really exciting. I started in this work 15 years ago. And when I started, there was a real push to be colorblind. Um, and it's really exciting that we have moved beyond that place, which really prevented us from acknowledging the hundreds of years of racist legacies that continue to inform policy and continue to inform people's lives. And you can't really heal people and do work that heals our communities without that. So it's really exciting to hear that that work is being lifted up in Seattle. I wanted to ask you about what you recommend for people who are non-Native in terms of acknowledging land, supporting ongoing Native American struggles. What is your recommendation for how other communities can be supporting your people and your work? It's a great question. And I think that what is important to think about is that a land acknowledgement is exactly that. It's just an acknowledgement and it's not always action. And that can get frustrating sometimes. You know, I think that part of what we have to realize is not just, we have to not just say this is a land acknowledgement, but this is also a stolen land acknowledgement, right? Like we're on land that people got pushed out of. And so we have to acknowledge that. I think the other thing I'm trying to remind people often is that it's also water, you know, we also need to acknowledge the water of the, of the tribal communities who always protected it and knew how to take um, such good care of it. So I think it's an important part of us moving towards justice, but I also think it cannot be the only thing. If you're always, you know, saying at the beginning of your meetings and you're not actually asking yourself, how do I take action to ensure that Native community is accessing our services, then that step is just not enough. But I hope that it pushes people to be thinking through that anti-racist lens. One of the ways we like to end our podcast is just asking people about housing justice work and what is at the heart of that work for you. What are you going to be focused on in the future around housing justice? Well, I think that kind of my ongoing work and will continue informing it is inviting people 
to be devoted to the idea of anti-racist housing policies. I think everyone that I've ever met in the housing world, and granted I live in a kind of a uh, liberal bubble out here in Seattle and the people I engage with, but everyone sees, yeah, like there are policies that are racist or, you know, there's policies that are encouraging this disparity. And so I think that I'm always going to be inviting people to really think about how they become anti-racist in the work that they do. It's not enough to say, yeah, this is a racist policy, but we have to be taking action and saying, we know this is a racist policy, so how do we change it? Um, because again, that will make our work more effective for everyone. That is my uh, mantra right now. I also think that POC-led agencies have to be building housing. And we have to be clearing the way for POC-led organizations, people of color-led organizations. We have to be finding new pathways to do this work. It's not rocket science, but there are also these systems that were made to ensure that you know white people were going to succeed at doing it. And so we have to break down those barriers. And also we have to be inviting the POC-led organizations in to every um, and at every table. So that was a little bit of a rant for you, but, but um, you know, that's the work I'm doing and I just love getting to do it. I feel really privileged to be able to do this. Those are both really concrete, um, which I think is always helpful for folks to be able to connect housing justice to really clear ways to do the work. It's great. Well, thank you, Colleen. Yeah, thank you, Molly. It was so nice to get to meet you and, and I love that um, you're doing this work. So thank you so much. Thanks for being on the podcast. Great talking with you. Yeah, great to talk with you. Recently, my husband and I took our son Jack to go see the poet laureate, Joy Harjo. She was giving a reading of her poetry at the Hammer Museum. And our son really liked this one poem she read called Rabbit is Up to Tricks. And it made me think about how we think about homelessness as being hard to communicate to people, the causes of homelessness, the solutions to homelessness. But in this poem that my 11-year-old son heard, there was a lot about justice and injustice in this poem, and he really immediately got it and loved it. And it made me think there might be easier ways for us to talk about our work and communicate the solutions we're trying to put forward. So we're going to close out today's episode with my son reading this poem. Rabbit is up to tricks by Joy Harjo. In a world long before this one, there was enough for everyone until someone got out of line. We heard it was Rabbit fooling around with clay in the wind. Everyone was tired of his tricks and no one would play with him. He was lonely in this world, so Rabbit thought to make a person. And when he blew into the mouth of the crude figure to see what would happen, the clay man stood up. Rabbit showed the clay man how to steal a chicken. The clay man obeyed. Rabbit showed him how to steal corn. The clay man obeyed. Then he showed him how to steal someone else's wife. The clay man obeyed. Rabbit felt important, powerful. The clay man felt important and powerful. And once the clay man started, he could not stop. Once he took the chicken, he wanted all the chickens. And once he took the corn, he wanted all the corn. And once he took that wife, he wanted all the wives. He was insatiable. Then he had a taste of gold and he wanted all the gold. Then it was land and anything else he saw. He wanted only made him want more. 
Soon it was countries, then it was trade. The mountain infected the earth. We lost track of our purpose and the reason for life. We began to forget our songs. We forgot our stories. We could no longer see or hear our ancestors. Our talk with each other across the kitchen table. Forests were being mowed down all over the world, and Rabbit had no place to play. Rabbit's tricks had backfired. Rabbit tried to call the clayman back, but when the clayman wouldn't listen, Rabbit realized he'd made a clayman with no ears. We hope that you'll keep listening and subscribe to the podcast, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please reach out by emailing us at housingjusticepodcast. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your questions and we will have a question and answer episode later in the season. So reach out and ask any question you have about homelessness in LA. Housing Justice LA is Lorraine Cantley. Molly Reisman. Bill Lance. New Dad. Our music is provided by Adam Goldman. Special thanks to Anne English for her support and work on the CSH Speak Up program. This podcast is produced on Tongva land in Los Angeles and made possible through a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation.